Job chapter 36. Today we will be looking at chapters 36 and 37. In these two chapters we have Elihu's fourth and final speech. And in part, we're sort of glad that, that he's going to be done talking because after such a promising beginning in which we sense a, a compassion in his posture toward Job, um, in which he separated the issue from the individual, the other friends had not done that, he spoke of the constructive nature of affliction. And he asserted in a wonderful way that a person does not suffer alone. He then made a radical turn in chapter 34. And he really turns on Job, and I think it is in due, due in part to two things. He makes two significant errors. First of all, he, he talked as though the secret purposes of God's providence could be discovered by human judgment. Where he says, come on, let's sit together, let's put our heads together, and let's figure out why these things have happened to Job. And secondly, he felt that he had to defend God against Job's attacks. And the fact that he did wrong in these two things is seen by the change in his attitude toward Job, in which he not only accused him of knowing nothing, but he wished that a greater affliction would come on him. Let me just read to you. Job speaks without knowledge. His words lack insight. Oh, that Job might be tested to the utmost for answering like a wicked man. Well, in his third speech, which we looked at last week, he tackled two issues. Why should I be good? What do I gain by not sinning? And why doesn't God answer my prayers? To the first question, Elihu gives two answers, neither of which are satisfactory. First is that God is so transcendent that he really doesn't, he's not affected by if you do good or if you do bad. And secondly, if you sin or if you do righteous, that only affects you and the human community. It does not affect God. And we saw last week that, yes, it doesn't change God's person, but it does affect him. He grieves over the lostness of those who are made in his image, and he rejoices over the lamb that was lost that has been found. To the second question, which is a question I think we've all asked at different points in our lives, why doesn't God answer my prayer? Elihu has it all figured out. He has a list of reasons. It's because of pride or arrogance, because of wrong motives, because of a lack of faith. And as we saw, these things actually are present in all our prayers, so his list really doesn't make a lot of sense. But what we do find in Elihu, like the three friends, is he's got God figured out. God is manageable. God is predictable. God is someone he can understand. What God does is absolutely clear to Elihu. But think about the weather. Just one small part of this reality. We cannot predict it, even though they try to. We cannot manage it. And yet Elihu thinks that he can, in fact, predict and manage the God who created this reality. As I mentioned last week, one author talks about the fact that there's a wildness to this world, to the ordering of things. That If we think we've got it figured out, we really have missed the boat. Elihu's God is too small, someone that Elihu has figured out. Today we come to the fourth and final speech. And Elihu continues in the same vein to speak about the nature of God. There's a children's prayer uh, that some children are taught to say before their meals. God is great. God is good. Now we thank him for our food. Well, the two points of this speech are that God is good and God is great. Now, he creates sort of a classroom-like setting 
And as we go through, you'll see that he, he begins by giving his credentials. I'm the teacher here, and this is what qualifies me to teach. He reviews, he gives the lesson, he asks questions. You see him doing this uh, two different times. Let's begin in chapter 36 with the first four verses. Elihu presents his teaching credentials. Elihu continued, Bear with me a little longer and I will show you that there is more to be said in God's behalf. I get my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe justice to my maker. Be assured that my words are not false. One perfect in knowledge is with you. I think because of his young age and because of his inexperience, Elihu suffers from the lack of established credentials. I find whenever I begin to teach at a new place that I'm much more conscious, I think, of my credentials. And so that at the beginning of a course, I will tell people, yes, I got my Ph.D. from UCLA. I am qualified to teach this class. <coughs> After I've been there for a while, you know, people know who I am and I don't think I have to prove who I am. Elihu feels like he has to establish his credentials. And he, he mentions four things here. And it's sort of important, by the way, if you look at verse number two, he says that he is going uh, that there's more to be said on God's behalf. Um, the implication is that he will do it. <coughs> if you could get some water. <coughs> his qualifications, first of all, his teaching will be extensive. In verse number two, I get my knowledge from afar. Secondly, his approach will be humble. So he's a good, humble teacher. I will ascribe justice to my maker. His teaching will be true. Be assured that my words are not false. Lastly, his teaching will be comprehensive. And it is this last statement that really sort of uh, bothers a lot of people. One perfect in knowledge is with you. It is this last statement that people really point at uh, to indicate Elihu's arrogance. I mentioned last Sunday that in Christendom we tend to find two extremes. Um, you know, those who sort of hold to the truth of Scripture, but in their dealings with other people tend not to be very kind. Those who do not hold to the truth of Scripture, but in their dealings with other people tend to be very kind. We hold the scriptures to be true. It is the word of God. It is unchanging. But we need to say right away and within the same breath that we don't know everything. That our interpretation of God's truth may be colored or, or tainted by our own sinfulness, our own culture, our own prejudices. Um, yes, we hold things to be true, but we also hold to our own fallenness and sinfulness. And so we walk really a, a razor's edge here. Yesterday in the religion section of the L.A. Times, there was a brief article uh, on the Southern Baptist Convention. They just met in Phoenix. And it's, according to this article, they spent much of their time defending their right to proclaim their religion as the only true path to salvation. And thus defending their right to evangelize and to seek to convert others. Well, uh, Abraham H. Foxman, who is the national director of the Anti-Defamation League, responded, and this is a quote. 
We have said many times that it is pure arrogance for any one religion to assume that they hold the truth. The Southern Baptist leadership clearly has not gotten the message. Unfortunately, at a time when many faiths have moved closer toward mutual respect and understanding, the Southern Baptist leadership continues their backward slide. End of quote. I would ask Mr. Foxman that if one does not believe that his or her religion has the truth, then what are they doing in that religion? I mean, I think I always assume that someone followed a particular, they belong to a particular religion or denomination because they believe that those people had the truth. Yet at the same time and in the same breath, we should acknowledge with humility And this humility, I think, only comes by God's grace that we do not know all the truth. We do not know all the truth. I do not hear humility in Elihu. And I think in this particular passage, it's what I, what I find most disturbing. In the Time magazine cover story for this coming week, I saw it this morning online. Uh, the cover story is, should Christians convert Muslims? now a big issue with the U.S. presence in Iraq. There's a statement there that says there is or there remains a troubling contingent of indeterminate size that combines religious arrogance with political arrogance. And, and this, I think, is the great tension. We have the truth. We have God's truth as revealed to us. And yet at the same time, we must be humble to acknowledge that we don't know all the truth and that we, in fact, can make mistakes. Apparently, this has not occurred to Elihu. So now the teacher has presented his, his credentials. What is the first thing that you do when you begin to teach? You need to review. Go back and go over previous stuff. Get a running start before you give your material. And this is what he does in verses 5 through 15. Follow along if you would as I read. God is mighty but does not despise men. He is mighty and firm in his purpose. He does not keep the wicked alive but gives the afflicted their rights. He does not take his eyes off the righteous. He enthrones them with kings and exalts them forever. But if men are bound in chains, held fast by cords of affliction, he tells them what they have done, that they have sinned arrogantly. He makes them listen to correction and commands them to repent of their evil. If they obey and serve him, they will spend the rest of their days in prosperity and their years in contentment. But if they do not listen, they will perish by the sword and die without knowledge. The godless in heart harbor resentment. Even when he fetters them, they do not cry for help. They die in their youth among male prostitutes of the shrines. But those who suffer, he delivers in their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. I would remind you that there are those who have, uh, I mentioned this, that there are those who say that Elihu is really simply mis or restating the positions taken by the three friends. That this is all, this is old news. We've heard this before. But Elihu, in fact, adds a new element to what they have to say about suffering. For him, suffering is not only negative. It has a creative, not simply a destructive purpose. And so we find him restating the, 
position of the friends and inserting his own new insight. He demonstrates, I think, uh, an important principle in teaching, repetition and review. And so what we hear here is not new. God is mighty, but in his strength, he does not despise humanity. He does not preserve the wicked. He gives justice to the oppressed. God keeps watch over the oppressed. If they are afflicted, he shows them their sin. He opens their ears to instruction. He commands them to repent. We've heard this before. The righteous have a choice, and this is some of the new stuff. He now, he's brought in the old stuff, and now we have sort of a new spin on this. The righteous have a choice, because for him, suffering is not simply, you did bad, God slapping you down. It also has the purpose of bringing you back. And so the righteous have a choice. If they return, if they obey and serve, they will have prosperity and pleasure. But if they do not obey, they will perish by the sword. That is, what has happened to them will only get worse and they will die. If they harbor resentment, I think this is a key issue in verses 13 and 14. If they are just mad at God and they will not repent, then they'll die like the wicked. Verse 15 is the summary of Elihu's position. Affliction among God's people has a purpose. God's people do not go through affliction alone. But without realizing it, I think Elihu certainly doesn't realize, he's contradicting himself. Because what we saw last week was that God is so distant and so indifferent to what is going on in our lives. And here we read that God cares, that he watches, that he teaches his people. But this is the contradiction of Elihu. Having reviewed and given new material, now he warns his student, that is Job. Before I read the passage in verses 16 through 21, one of the things I struggle with as a teacher is, how do you motivate your students to learn? I think it's one of the reasons why I enjoy teaching at college or university level, because I assume the students are motivated already. Uh, if you're in elementary school, my mother-in-law taught first grade for how many years, that might be a bit tough to motivate the students. Well, in today's world, in today's society, positive reinforcement. You know, you've got to build them up and, and encourage them. You know, don't give them a D. You know, if they don't do the work, you know, sort of, you know, pass them even though they haven't done the work. And that, the, the feeling is that that will sort of motivate them to continue in their education. This is not the route that Elihu takes with Job. He's more of the old-fashioned, whack them over the head. That's all the motivation they need to learn. And, and follow along, if you would, in verses 16 through 21. He is wooing you from the jaws of distress to a spacious place free from restriction, to the comfort of your table, laden with choice food. But now you are laden with the judgment due the wicked. Judgment and justice have taken hold of you. Be careful that no one entices you by riches. Do not lay a large bribe, or do not let a large bribe turn you aside. Would your wealth or even all your mighty efforts sustain you so that you would not be in distress? Do not long for the night to drag people away from their homes. Beware of turning to evil, which you seem to prefer to affliction. 
This is the old two by four between the eyes. You want motivation? Here, let me motivate you, Job. You better be careful and beware of the consequences of bitterness. This is back in verse 13. If you harbor resentment, that will not turn out good. And stop making judgments as though you know as much as God. This is one of the common complaints against Job. And don't think you can take care of yourself. Be self-sufficient. That somehow, I've got money, I will be able to take care of myself. The person who is self-confident and self-sufficient, God cannot teach them. And in fact, this is a recurring theme in the, in the wisdom literature. God accepts the humble. He rejects the proud. Why? Because the proud, they don't need God to tell them anything. And so God cannot tell them anything. And Elihu says, Job, wake up. Listen, I'm teaching you. Stop being self-sufficient. Don't go that way. Don't go there, Job. Don't be self-sufficient. Don't be judgmental. You need to listen to what God has to say. And what do you do when you're through teaching? You ask questions to see if the students have gotten the lesson. And this we find in verses 22 and 23. God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed his ways for him or said to him, you have done wrong? The teacher asks the questions here. Three questions. Who can teach like God? Because remember, Elihu believes that affliction is a way of God's teaching. Who can tell God what to do and who can correct him? And the answer to all three is no one. God is great. There is no one who can do these things. Job must be thinking this in his head. God is great. And it leads directly into the second lesson. The first is that God is good. And now we come to the second point that God is great. And Elihu continues in the same vein. Look, if you would, at verses 24 through 26. Remember to extol his work, which men have praised in song. All mankind has seen it. Men gaze at it from, on it from afar. How great is God beyond our understanding? The number of his years is past finding out. The key line here, and it opens up this second section, is God is great. How great is God beyond our understanding? We've already been told that there's no teacher like him. No one who can teach us like God can through affliction. But now Elihu wants to pursue this idea of God being great. And what he does in a rather extended passage, and I'll just read it and, and not uh, comment too much on it, is illustrations of God's greatness. When you look at hymns in the Bible, songs of praise, Almost invariably, they focus on one thing, God's work, what God has done. In the book of Revelation, we are told that those who have been victorious over the beast sang the song of Moses, the song of Moses from the book of Exodus. And it begins, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Elihu begins, remember to extol his work which men have praised in song. All mankind has seen it. Men gaze on it from afar. 
God's greatness is evident to all human beings. It's seen in different ways, in in history, in humanity, but he focuses here on creation, God's greatness as seen in creation. There are three points in this particular section. First of all, that God is the creator. That's sort of assumed. That's not spelled out. Secondly, that God is the controller of all things. That is the main point. And lastly, in verse 13 at the end, God has a point, a cause for all of it. Look, if you would, follow along as I read. Beginning in verse number 27. He draws up the drops of water which distill as rain to the streams. The clouds pour down their moisture and abundant showers fall on mankind. Who can understand how he spreads out the clouds, how he thunders from his pavilion? See how he scatters his lightning about him, bathing the depths of the sea. This is the way he governs the nations and provides food in abundance. He fills his hands with lightning and commands it to strike its mark. His thunder announces the coming storm. Even the cattle make known its approach. At this, my heart pounds and leaps from its place. Listen, listen to the roar of his voice, to the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He unleashes his lightning beneath the whole heaven and sends it to the ends of the earth. After that comes the sound of his roar. He thunders with his majestic voice. When his voice resounds, he holds nothing back. God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. He does great things beyond our understanding. He says to the snow, fall on the earth, and to the rain shower, be a mighty downpour, so that all men he has made may know his work. He stops every man from his labor. The animals take cover. They remain in their dens. The tempest comes out from its chamber, the cold from the driving winds. The breath of God produces ice, and the broad waters become frozen. He loads the clouds with moisture, so he scatters his lightning through them. At his direction, they swirl around over the face of the whole earth to do whatever he commands them. He brings the clouds to to punish men or to water his earth and show his love. It's an amazing passage. Uh, I think a great passage probably to read during a good thunderstorm. Uh, We don't have many of them out here in California, but if you've ever lived in the Midwest, they have some real powerful thunderstorms. And for Elihu, um, these do sort of scare him at times. If you look at the first verse, that his heart pounds and, and leaps in its place. But they really, all of these things are demonstrations of the fact that God is in control of nature. He created this reality. He is in control. And he spends most of the time on that. And then at the very end, sticks in that one verse to tell us God has a purpose. There is a cause for all of the things that happen. Why did these things happen? Well, he gives us three reasons. To correct his people, to water his earth, to show his love. It's that middle one that seems to bother commentators and scholars. Because to say that it is to correct his people, okay, I get that. To show his love, yes, I get that. But what is this about watering the earth? I think it's wonderful. I think Elihu sticks something in there just to remind us that this isn't all about us. Okay? I think sometimes when we look at human history and, and just the world in general, we think it's all about us. Yes, we are made in God's image, 
But God put us here to take care of his creation. He loves his creation. And so it reigns not simply to teach us, to show us his love, but to take care of his creation. And it's interesting, the passages that talk about the animals taking cover and hiding out in their dens. Now it's time for questions again. The lesson has been given. Now we ask questions. Um, Look at verses 14 through 18. Listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. Do you know how God controls the clouds and makes his lightning flash? Do you know how the clouds hang poised, those wonders of him who is perfect in knowledge? You who swelter in your clothes when the land lies hushed under the south wind, can you join him in spreading out the skies hard as a mirror of cast bronze? Elihu wants to know whether or not Job has got the point. God is God and you're not, Job. For all your judgments and your criticisms and your questionings of God, God is God and you're not. And one author has paraphrased this. uh, Do you know when God dispatches his wondrous works? Do you know what causes the lightning to flash? Do you know how the clouds are balanced? Do you know why your clothes get hot? Do you know who spreads out the skies? It's you know, the proverbial who, what, when, where. Job, do you know these things? God is the one who does these things. And he makes the application now at the end of chapter 37. Tell us what we should say to him, Elihu says. We cannot draw up our case because of our darkness. Should he be told that I want to speak? Would any man ask to be swallowed up? Now no one can look at the sun, bright as it is in the skies, after the wind has swept them clean. Out of the north he comes in golden splendor. God comes in awesome majesty. The Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. In his justice and great righteousness he does not oppress. Therefore men revere him, for he does not have regard for all the wise in heart. One of the tricks to teaching is to get the students to become the teacher. You've given them the information. You've asked them the question. Now you want them to teach. And so Elihu steps back and says, okay, Job, I've done my teaching. Now you teach me. Okay. Tell us, Job, you who are now the teacher, tell us what we should say to him. Apparently Job has nothing to say. And Elihu ends his speaking with phrases like golden splendor, awesome majesty, great righteousness. You know, Elihu's made some serious mistakes, but he does have a sense of God's goodness and God's greatness. And I think for that he should be commended. Before we leave Elihu, let's talk about his importance to the book of Job and to the Bible in general. I've suggested over the past few weeks a number of reasons for why we have Elihu at this part of the book of Job. The one that I've repeated over and over again is he provides a spacer, a buffer zone between Job's statement of, come on, God, come down and talk to me, and when God finally does speak, so that God is not coming because of Job's challenge. But the second thing, and that is what I want to emphasize now, 
Elihu has some very important things to say. Some very important things to say. His contribution to the wisdom literature of the Old Testament is this. When people suffer, it isn't simply because they've done something bad. If you read the book of Proverbs, and Lonnie's been reading it to us for the past few months, you have this, this picture of retribution. If you live a particular way, these are the consequences. If you do good, you will be rewarded. If you do bad, you will suffer. That's what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have been telling Job all along. Elihu now brings in a new dimension. It's not black and white. It isn't you do bad, you suffer, you do well, and you are rewarded. He accepts the possibility that you may suffer even though you've not done anything wrong. The friends say, no, you suffer, you must have done something bad. Elihu says, no, that's not the case. That it is possible that God uses suffering to teach. It's one of his many He uses dreams, he uses visions, but he also uses suffering and affliction. He uses them to teach a person. These are means, the suffering is a means that God uses to pull somebody back. Someone who has done something wrong and God doesn't simply smack them on top of the head and say, get back over here. That God gently afflicts them and they sort of wake up like, what am I doing? And they turn and they repent and they come back to God. Now in Job's case, it's interesting, Elihu for the most part doesn't touch the old stuff. You know, losing the children, losing all the animals, losing all his possessions, losing his health. He doesn't touch that part. Uh, if He's wise in that because who knows why that has happened. What he deals with is what has happened since then. Because as we've heard from Job, the suffering didn't end. It continues. He's been having nightmares. He's been having seizures. Physically, his, his health has gotten even worse. That's what Elihu deals with. And he says to Job, God's trying to teach you something, Job. Remember the question, who is a teacher like God? Who is a better teacher? No one. Job, God's trying to teach you something through these things that you're suffering. Elihu is afraid for Job. He's afraid that God has been trying to teach him, but instead Job has complained and accused God of being unjust. That Job has said, God does not rule with justice. I am innocent and I'm suffering in spite of my innocence. And Elihu says, listen, Job, you've got to get rid of the pride. You have got to confess your pride. And then God will clean out your ears and you will get the message of what he's trying to teach you. Elihu doesn't have the whole picture, but he's done far better than the three friends. And Job would do well to listen to him. Well, now, here we are. We've finished chapter 37. We have come to the end of what these five participants have to say. The three friends, Job, Elihu. Only one participant remains to be heard from. And the Lord willing, next Sunday... We will begin our study of chapter 38.
in which God speaks. The one who has been silent through all of this. The one that Job has challenged. Why don't you answer me? God will speak. And what he has to say will be amazing. Let's pray together. Our Father, we acknowledge that you are good and that you are great. And that in your kindness and your mercy you provide for us. You provide for your creation. And yet things happen in our lives that we do not understand. Things that trouble us. We've not experienced what Job has. But may we take the advice of Elihu, humble ourselves, and listen for you to teach us. To know that everything that happens in our life, whether affliction, whether good or bad, the good things, the bad things, the difficult things, the pleasant ones, that you are trying to teach us. We just need to listen. I thank you for this day when we could meet to worship you. May your grace and your spirit go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you stand, please, as we sing the doxology? of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.